And so we come to Acts 15, and this question is really going to, to come to a head. How in the world are Jews and Gentiles meant to live together in the community of the Messiah Jesus? How are we supposed to do this? Uh, because on one hand, Jesus came to fulfill everything that the law was pointing to. Romans says that he is the end, he is the, he is the fulfillment of the law for those who believe. And he, he came to fulfill every promise that he ever made to his people, starting with Abraham and all the way through. Really starting with Adam and continuing on through Noah. He came to fulfill his promises. But he also came to extend and expand the scope of who his people was to not just his chosen nation, his special nation through whom he was working uh, his, his blessing into the earth, but to every nation. And remember at the beginning of Acts, Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, beginning with Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Okay, so last week we talked about how the gospel was beginning to go to the ends of the earth. This was largely happening at the hands of Paul. He had been converted. He was a Pharisee. He received a mighty visitation from the Lord. He was knocked on the ground, uh, received a blinding vision of light, was blind for three days. God turned his world upside down, changed his name from Saul to Paul, and gave him a ministry to reach the Gentiles with the gospel. So we looked at Paul and Barnabas' first mission. In Acts 13, they were sent out. They were commissioned by the Holy Spirit after prayer and fasting. Also remember, two weeks ago, when we looked at Paul's conversion, Saul's conversion, in light of, uh, in, in comparison with Cornelius, uh, the, the, the centurion's um, conversion, there were a lot of similarities. And the main lesson that Peter had to learn in coming to terms with both Saul's conversion and Cornelius' conversion, is that truly God shows no partiality. That there is one way to become part of the people of God. And it's the same way that's true for Jews and also Gentiles. Well, here in Acts 15, Peter's revelation of this truth is really going to be tested. Right? He understood it in principle. And it's one thing to affirm something like that when the Spirit's so clearly speaking. But then to realize, right, we've had this, like, you've probably experienced something like this. Some big revelation about the way you're supposed to live makes perfect sense in the moment. Maybe there's some sort of uh, teaching that you were at or a, a, a service where there's some truth spoken and it just hits you like a lightning bolt out of heaven. And you go, wow, that is truth. But then as life goes on, you start to see just how many areas of your life are affected by that truth and how you're really going to have to change a lot of stuff. Well, that's, this is what's happening here. Peter received the revelation and God spoke. I mean, it was a miraculous meeting between Peter and Cornelius and that God brought them together. He said, Peter has something to share to you, share with you, Cornelius. And it was a miraculous meeting. But now Peter is starting to have to see how this, this applies from here on out for all Gentiles, for all time. Okay, so Paul and Barnabas have come back. They've reported everything that God's been doing among the Gentiles. 
in chapter 15, remember, we've talked about God's impartiality. And we've talked about um, the, the mission that Paul and Barnabas went on among the Gentiles. And this is all, uh, this is all a backdrop to what happens here in, in chapter 15. So, uh, some men came down from Judea to Antioch, where they were. Remember, that was the home base for the Gentile mission. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. By the way, when it says come down, if you're looking at a map, it's actually they came up. The reason it says down is because it's elevation. All right, Judea would, would have been a higher elevation than Antioch. So when it says they came down from Judea, they're actually traveling north to Antioch, but they're coming down in elevation. So um, they didn't have the kind of maps that we did, the northern oriented maps. So when they were describing going somewhere, oftentimes it was more in terms of just the, the perceived topography, if that makes sense. Unless you are circumcised, this is what these people were saying. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, so the issue at stake is a big one, a salvation. Right? It's a pretty important issue. And these brothers from Judea were saying that you have to become circumcised. In other words, you have to become full-fledged Jews if you're to be considered saved. Okay, and this did not jive with what Paul and Barnabas understood of the gospel, what Peter had been revealed about the gospel. And it says, and, Paul, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, I like how Luke often says, no small, <laughs> it was no small uprising. They had no small dissension and debate with them Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem. There they are going up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Admirable, right? They get into a disagreement and rather than agree to disagree and go their separate ways and form different denominations based on, uh, based on the circumcision question, they say, let's all go up to and, and appeal to a higher authority than us. Let's all go and get this question answered. This is important for, enough for us to put everything on hold. Let's all go up to Jerusalem together to the apostles and the elders. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. So even on the way, <laughs> they're saying, isn't it great? God is, is welcoming in the Gentiles. This is an amazing thing. When they came to Jerusalem... They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. A similar, I'm sure, a similar testimony to one, the one they had given at the end of chapter 14 in Antioch. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders, it says, were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, I don't know how long it went, but I imagine it went on for a pretty long time. I imagine that there was the temptation for some who were involved in the meetings to start to roll their eyes and go, what? why are we taking so long? Can't we just come to some sort of agreement? 
but they, they, they stuck it out. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, so Peter, it was known as the apostle, you know, he was the kind of the head guy there, uh, the apostle to the Jews. So he stands up and he reminds them what happened a couple chapters ago. Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel. Remember, guys, this, this thing with Cornelius? And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction. Remember, God shows no partiality. There's not to be any more distinction between one member of the body of Christ and another. On a certain level, everybody is on the same playing field. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore... Why are you putting God to the test by, now this is important, by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? So he says, listen, guys. All right, so you want to bring the whole weight of the law and bring it and put it on these Gentile disciples. Well, how has that gone for you in your own life? (laughs) Right? Remember, one of the reasons Jesus needed to come is because his people were continually finding themselves incapable of following his commands. They kept falling away. They kept being seduced away by idolatry. They kept rebelling. And so Jesus had to come and show them, no, this is what it looks like to walk after the whole law. It's an issue of the heart. It's not about external uh, adherence. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So Peter makes it very clear. All right, guys, we have to get one thing out of the way. When we're talking about salvation, we're talking about the grace of God through faith. Okay? And he makes that very clear. Because they were saying that, how did they begin? Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be Saved. All right, so Peter says this. Hey, guys, you weren't saved by the law or by circumcision. So why are you cutting off the Gentiles from salvation because of the thing that doesn't save you anyway? You were saved by grace, and so are they. So when we're talking about salvation, we're talking about grace. It's grace 100%. And all the assembly fell silent. It was a pretty convincing argument. Oh, yeah. He has a good point. And as they listened to Barnabas and Paul, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, and this was the brother of Jesus, and he had some high standing among the church in Jerusalem. And he kind of puts the final word on it. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, this is, that's Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Now, that was, that was a pretty radical statement. God has visited the Gentiles to take for them a people for his name. The Jews were the people of God. Right? And he said, he's gone to the Gentiles, which is to the nations. 
to gather up a people for his name. Wait a minute. Something different is happening now. And with, and with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, and he quotes Amos 9, after this I will return, I will rebuild the tent of David. Again, establish the, the, the throne of David and his lifestyle of worship, and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Don't trouble them with the things that don't even lead to your own salvation. Right? Don't cut, off, don't cut them off from salvation uh, by making them do things that didn't lead to your own salvation. But we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. And then he says something really interesting here. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogue. So let me say a few things about this. First of all, is that this council, sometimes we get it in, this, in our head that this that this was a pivotal moment in sort of distancing ourselves from the Old Testament law, okay? But it's very obvious if you read this, that this council takes a very high view of Scripture, right? How many times have they quoted Scripture and referred back to it? But they also remain open to revelation, okay? So they have a very high view of Scripture, the same as those who want to bring the law to, to bear on the Gentiles' lives. But they've also been open to revelation, particularly Peter. But then they've also been open to personal experience that confirms the revelation. And the Spirit is active in each of these areas. So the Spirit's active in opening up to them the scriptures, opening up their understanding of the scriptures in a deeper way. The Spirit's active in giving them new revelation about this is the time for the Gentiles to come in. And the Spirit's been active in personally visiting Peter, personally giving Paul and Barnabas these experiences among the Gentiles that confirm the revelation, which confirms what scripture has always been about. So all these things work together in this council. None of these things, scripture, revelation, or experience, none of those things should be neglected when coming to big decisions like this. Wrestling through issues of doctrine. And so the twofold result of this council was, number one, to clarify what the, for the Jews... What's the key marker of salvation? It's not circumcision. It's not traditional observance of Torah. It's grace through faith. And also to reiterate that because that's true for you, that's also true for the Gentiles. Nothing unique to you has saved you, is what he's saying to the Jews. Nothing unique to the Jewish people has saved them. Nothing unique that's not also available to the Gentiles as well. It's grace. 
But the other thing that we see, the way this ends up, is that a people needs an ethos. And what an ethos is, is a, a, way, of li- a way of living together, a, a set of standards by which to live. Okay, so they don't just say, all right, no, let's not trouble the Gentiles. They have four specific instructions to give the Gentiles, and those were very carefully considered. The ordinances that are delivered by the council prevent the Jews from placing the yoke of strict Torah adherence on the necks of the Gentiles. But it also signals to the Gentiles that, yes, entrance into the body of Christ involves a distinct change in your behavior, in, what, in, 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 in right and wrong, in what you view as right and wrong. Ethical and even ceremonial lifestyle. So it talks about meat sacrifice to idols. And these changes, now this is, you got to hear this. These four ordinances that they deliver to the Gentiles are straight out of Leviticus 17 and 18. So they're not abandoning the law. They're not abandoning the Old Testament. They're bringing the Old Testament and using it in the proper way for what God is currently doing. And it's not out of step with what God's always been after. All right. You can go and read Leviticus 17 and 18. It talks about this whole issue of, of uh, meat that's been strangled, which is basically the blood is still in it. Uh, it talks about um, different kinds of, of uh, relations. Basically, when it says avoiding sexual immorality, it means avoiding uh, unions within a certain distance of family member. Right? That's what Leviticus 18 is, all, is talking all about. And if you read in Leviticus 17 and 18, it says, these laws will be for you and also for the foreigner among you. All right, so rather than just saying, okay, we're scrapping the law. Now here's just four rules instead of all the ones in the law. What they're doing is saying, here's how to properly live according to the law of God in light of what God is doing right now. Okay, and that is a much more nuanced approach than saying, all right, now we're in the, old, in the New Testament life. And in the New Testament life, there's a lot fewer rules. It's not true. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, we're not talking about do and don't. We're talking about a whole way of life. And unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So nowhere in this entire council... Do we witness anything remotely dismissive of the Old Testament? All right. Everything is being run through the filter of the Old Testament in this whole decision process with meticulous detail. Right. I mean, they talk about uh, they talk about their own personal experience, but they talk about uh, a passage from the prophets. They refer back to Leviticus 17 and 18. So Their decision was deeply informed by the Old Testament. The new revelation, which is the way God is extending membership uh, among his people to the Gentiles, that's the new thing that God is doing. And the issues raised by that are driving this really still young uh, new community. They're driving everyone back into Scripture and saying, 
All right, we thought we knew scripture, but what does it really mean? So they're being driven back into the Old Testament with renewed perspective and figuring out how do we live? How does scripture tell us how to live? How does the Old Testament tell us how to live in light of what God is doing right now? They don't go back and discover how old and outdated the Torah is. They are learning things that have always been in the Torah. And knowing them fully for the first time. They are getting down to the heart of the law and the prophets. Which is what the community of the Messiah was to be founded on. And this is the kind of understanding of scripture upon which the church of Jesus is built. Scripture in light of Jesus is the foundation of the church. It seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas and Silas, leading men among the brothers. And they send a letter to the, to the hub of the Gentile church from which it could disseminate um, to the broader Gentile ministry. And it says that uh, in verse 25, it seemed good to us having come to one accord. They were all in agreement about this. They were speaking with one voice. Seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So they were saying the Holy Spirit's active in this council as well. The Holy Spirit is in agreement with this. Our hearts are in agreement with this. Scripture's in agreement with this. Here's how we ought to live. But then two really interesting things happen that are confusing to me in light of what we've just read. And they seem out of step with the spirit of the Jerusalem council. And I think they're there to stretch our understanding of church unity. Okay? And the freedom from the letter of the law. So, number one, Paul and Barnabas have a sharp disagreement. Right? The last time that there was a disagreement, it was Paul and Barnabas against these Judaizers, the circumcision party. Paul and Barnabas have a sharp disagreement and separate from each other. Right after this great council and this great display of one accord and church unity. What's going on here? The second thing is that Paul goes, in, in the beginning of chapter 16, he goes, to, he, uh, he goes to Derby and he meets Timothy, wants to bring him on, the, on board on the team, and he takes him and he has him circumcised. What's going on? Precisely, explicitly, for the sake of the Jews who were in that place. Wait, what is going on here? Right? We have a sharp disagreement, and then we have Paul doing something that, in the beginning of Galatians, is an awful lot like what he would have gotten on Peter for doing, which is catering to the Jews. And I think... I think Luke is very, well, I know Luke is very intentional in placing those two stories right after this big council at Jerusalem, okay? And we are the church of God. This book teaches us how to be the church of God, how to stay on mission, how to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And I believe what it's telling us here is that sometimes we need to stay in a room until we are 100% in agreement 
And sometimes we need to realize that the town really is big enough for the two of us. And what I mean by that is not that sometimes we agree, sometimes we agree to disagree. It's not what we're talking about. But there are some times when different agendas mean that we should kind of stay in our own lanes. And that to stay together would compromise the work that we're both doing. Okay? We should stay in our own lanes and put our hands to our own plows. Now, I'm not saying that this at all says that we should, when we can't agree or when we have a problem with each other, that we should split. In fact, I think it's saying the opposite. Barnabas, in other words, I believe that they split for the sake of unity and for the sake of the work of the kingdom. Okay? Barnabas obviously had in mind the compassionate inclusion of John Mark. Okay? He wanted to give John a second chance. It also helps that he was related to John. <laughs> he kind of felt for him. But Barnabas is the compassionate one. Barnabas is the one who vouched for Paul when nobody else did. He's the, his name means the son of encouragement. Barnabas is for people, and he wants to take John Mark, and he's got a project. He's got an agenda. He's going to help reestablish John Mark, help him get over whatever it was that caused him to split before. And I'm going to stick with this guy. Right? This is kind of a pastoral situation that's happening. Paul says, we don't have time for that. We can't do that right now. He's already abandoned us, and we can't work through we can't work through his weaknesses if we're going to do what God has called me to do. And so it's not an agree to disagree situation. It's an acknowledgement that there are two different aspects of the work of the kingdom going on simultaneously. One is bearing with a weaker brother and trying to help him become reestablished and reintegrated into the work. The other one is being on the bleeding edge of the mission and blazing a new trail Okay, it's not the best environment for a weaker brother. So I think in the midst of their agreement, in their disagreement, they understood, oh, there's two different things here. There's two different works happening here. Okay, so they didn't fume away. They didn't march away from each other in a huff, which is sometimes, I think, the picture that we get. Because later, Paul says, bring John Mark to me. He's useful for the ministry. So a modern example would be where I think that this is a healthy thing to keep things separate, keep people separate, is if like there's a discipleship house, right? That has a very particular vision. Everyone in the house is healthy, ready to go, and they have a particular work that they're doing, okay? And a weaker brother who's really struggling with a couple different things, it's not good for the house or for him to be a part of that house. So they should kind of stay Stay in their own lanes, right? The discipleship house should continue to do the work that they've been called to do. The weaker brother needs to be among the people that can help him grow. Now, maybe that's in the discipleship house. But more often than not, both projects get pulled down when you try and force them together. All right? You understand how that works? So I think that that's what's going on uh, in Paul and Barnabas. This thing's running out of battery. That should work.
So we've got the Jerusalem council. We're all in the room. We're all in one accord. And then Paul and Barnabas split from each other. But it just shows that, yes, there are certain things that we need to have 100% agreement on. But in certain situations, we need to kind of have some separation. Because there's different things that are going on. Does that make sense? So Luke is stretching our understanding of, all right, you could read this story and say, every single decision that we do, we all have to be always doing this. No, there are certain times that for the sake of a particular work, we got to have separate things going on. And the work actually multiplied. It, w- it was not hindered in any way. It was actually augmented because now you have Barnabas and John Mark working together. And you have Paul and Silas working together. And obviously, you know, the, the coming chapters show what a fruitful work that was. So you had two bands of fruitful workers. That, that nothing was, nothing was uh, compromised in their separation. I think they realized that and decided to do it. It was best for the work for us to stay in our own lanes. Okay? This is different than leaving because I don't like the way things, the way you do it. Or I don't, you rub me the wrong way. I don't want to be with you. It's I have a very clear call from God to do this. You have a very clear call from God to do this. And if we're trying to fit a square peg into a round hole, let's just stop. We don't necessarily need to be doing everything the same way if you and I have very different callings. Okay? So there's some wisdom there in how to live in the community of God. There's also wisdom in what Paul did with Timothy. And taking him and having him circumcised. Paul, I mean, Paul would have been way more radical, right? If he was the primary voice in the Jerusalem council, and we have this from some of his letters, he would have been like, are you serious with the circumcision stuff? Can you even believe these guys? You know, that's where Paul was coming from. He was a radical believer. He was a, I mean, he was a radical advocate for the Gentiles. And so what was wise for him to do was to show his respect for tradition and his deference to Jews. That's what he needed to do in that particular situation. He didn't have to. He had every right to. And, and one of the things that Paul loves to do is to assert his right and then not use it. <laughs> he loves to say, I have a right to do this. And I'm not going to do it. He was a lawyer who loved to point out the finer points of the law and then subvert the law. Do something that that was radically different. This sounds an awful lot like the scripture that I read before communion. Though he was in the form of God, didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Paul loved to do this. He was hyper aware of rights and of legal situations. But he was so quick to divest himself and to empty those rights to do what was the most loving thing. And so this is, this is great. I love that we have this story followed up with <laughs> Paul and Barnabas's. I mean, they were together. They were fighting together, went to, went, brought everybody to Jerusalem together, and then they split. <laughs> they realized that they had two different works, two different directions to go, uh, two different priorities in ministry. Uh, And then Paul, um, there are times when he needed to show that he he respected tradition. All right, so some summary thoughts. 
Two big thoughts come to mind. Number one is that a people needs an ethos. A people need a way of living together, a, a, a shared set of moral, ethical, even ceremonial, cultural standards. A people need that if they're going to have unity. And so um, in, the, in the ever-growing, ever-widening body of Christ, the apostles needed to redefine the ethos. Okay? What are we all going to do? So a people need an ethos, and the ethos should be determined by wise established leaders. There's, there's four points here, but people need an ethos. Number one, determined by wise established leaders. Number two, who are submitted to Scripture. Number three, who are open to fresh revelation from the Spirit and fresh direction. And number four, as con- and who are open to the confirmation by testimony of personal experience. Right? So wise leadership should make the decisions. What are we all going to do for sure? How are we go- what, what, are the, what are the non-negotiables here among us? Wise leaders should make that submitted to Scripture, but open to fresh revelation and open to the confirmation of personal testimony. Right, so that the personal testimony of individuals is not worthless. Wise leadership should keep their ear to the ground and say, what is the Spirit doing among us? And part of understanding what the Spirit's doing among us is hearing people's testimonies, hearing what people are themselves hearing from the Spirit. And so once the ethos is established, everyone should fully get on board. Right? They were all in one accord. And they said, we're going to send this out, and we need total buy-in. Okay, so once that's there, everyone needs to do it. Gentiles, too. See, that's the thing. They weren't saying, all right, Gentiles, you guys, have fun. They said, Gentiles, here are the ways that your life needs to for sure conform to the law of God. In our day and age, given what we know given our understanding of Scripture, given the revelation of the Spirit, Gentiles, here are the ways that you for sure need to change. And those ways mostly had to do with the Gentiles not being offensive to their Jewish brothers. Gentiles, here are some ways that you can love the more devout Jewish, the more Orthodox Jewish members of your current, of your local uh, congregation. The final thing about ethos is this. The process of determining ethos is as much about what not to burden people with as what to require. And in fact, I would say, as a pastor, as a, as a member of a broader leadership team of our family of churches in this city, the conversations more have to do with, all right, well, we got this person who wants to make everyone do this. What do we think about that? Well, probably shouldn't be, hey, everyone should do this, right? It's more often about holding back, like the people, hey, unless you are circumcised, you can't be saved. Right? The leadership had to step in and say, no, that's not what we're going to tell everyone to do. Okay, so very often, often an ethos says, here are, the, here are the things that are not absolutes among us. 
Okay? And so we have those among us as well. We have, we have some absolutes. But we also, and one of my roles as a pastor is to figure out where people are making absolutes, where we've said, no, we're not going to make absolutes here. Right? We're not going to put these yokes on everyone. So a people needs an ethos. And wise leadership uh, wrestles and comes to a conclusion. Number two, this is the, kind of the second big takeaway for me, is that convening and discussing, having long conversations and wrestling with Scripture is just a part of the move of the Spirit as revival and missionary activity. Okay, the Spirit's all over this Jerusalem council, just like he's all over the showdowns with the, with the sorcerers and the healings and the, missionary and, the, and the miracles that are happening out on the missionary road. The Spirit's here in the room in the difficult conversations as well. And so this Jerusalem council, it was the inevitable result of the move of the Spirit. The Spirit calls the church to go out and witness, and the Spirit also calls the church to gather, shut the doors, and talk things out. Those are both moves of the Spirit. Disagreement and debate, if Acts tells us anything, disagreement and debate are just as much a part of the DNA of the body of Christ as mission and revival are. We usually read Acts and we say, man, we just... I wish we could be like the Church of Acts. Well, you want to sit in a room and talk things out? Wrestle with Scripture? Come to 100% agreement and submit yourself to what the council agrees? Because that's also the Church of Acts. Church discussions deserve just as much of our focus and concern as the next big push for growth. It's all part of one cohesive move of the Spirit. Amen? And so, we like to get all riled up about the next evangelistic push. Come on, yeah, we're going to go out and get some people saved. We need to get all riled up for the conversations that we have about the way we're going to live life together, too. All right? Remember that in the opening of Acts, this is how Acts begins. Jesus ascends, he says, power is going to come on you. And the first thing they have is they sit in a room and they say, hey, how are we going to fill Judas's spot? <laughs> what does Scripture say? What do y'all think? Let's cast some lots. Right? Scripture, revelation, the move of the Spirit, personal experience. Then what happens? Then the Spirit falls in chapter 2. And this is, this is, a, move, this is a, a rhythm of the move of the Spirit. So I've been convinced since I was very young. And I went to Asbury College. And when I was there, there was a revival. Uh, Asbury College is known for a very famous revival in 1970. And there have been a, a few kind of mini revivals since then. I was a part of one in the early 2000s, in the mid-2000s, actually. Um, I've, I've always been eager for revival. And me and the, the people that were my age and, and UCF, and we were, we've always been eager for revival. I want to see the Lord move, especially, I mean, we've, we've prayed on campus. 
We've done evangelism on campus. We've seen some amazing things happen. Our hearts long for the Spirit of God to move. But I've been convinced that though revival is often what people most ardently long for, you know, the real zealous Christians, they cry out for revival. That's only part of what the Spirit's doing. It's not the, the zenith of the Spirit's move. The Spirit's building churches. God is as willing as ever to send revival, but what often causes revivals to fizzle out is the lack of infrastructure to support the move of God. Building churches, the long work of establishing relationship, true fellowship, is necessary to the move of the Spirit. Everybody wants to witness the mighty works of God. But it's harder to find those who want to be led of the Spirit into a room to make a hard decision, labor in the Word of God, to set direction and structure for the people, to draw lines between us and the culture around us. And this is the difference between fathers and teenagers. Right? A teenager brings one perspective to a family meeting, <laughs> which is basically, I want to do what I want to do. A father brings a very different perspective to a family meeting, to a family decision session. Right? There are much different concerns on a father's heart than on a teenager's heart in directing the family. And so often the church is more full of teenagers who want to have a good time, who want to see amazing things, than it is fathers who want to create the atmosphere, who want to create a team that God could add 3,000 people to in a day and they all be cared for. Except for that one time when they had to get seven more guys to help out. (laughs) That's what God wants to do. But you build it. You build it and you pray for revival, but you build it and you build it and you remain faithful. And you come out of those meetings in one accord and you are faithful and are faithful and are faithful. And God will decide when he wants to add and when he wants to bring revival. But we have to bring that zeal, that desire to see him move to all those mundane questions that we have about living life together. To all the little... Meetings that we might roll our eyes at. Another, what, we're still talking about this? <laughs> I love the long, laborsome family discussions in the church that lead to greater clarity in who we are as a people. Because we can come out on the other side ready to sustain an influx of new disciples because we know who we are. And the Spirit's led us to unity. The, Spirit's led us, the Spirit has founded us, sent down our roots deep. And we're actually a functioning family because God wants to settle the solitary in a family. (laughs) That's what he wants to do. And so the Spirit builds us into a church. The Spirit also brings the lost. But he wants to bring them to a helpful place. He wants to bring them into a healthy environment. And so working on the healthy environment is just as important to finding as many people as we can to be saved. Um, and, and, it, and it's just as much the move of the Holy Spirit. So if you want to be a New Testament Acts church, you're going to see some amazing things. 
you're also going to have some long, boring conversations and come out on the other side stronger and deeper and ready to live in the family of God together. Amen? So God, God's calling us. We need to have, right? It was the apostles and the elders. These are the fathers of the church. They brought the perspective of wisdom. They brought the, the long view of Scripture, the deep view of Scripture. They brought the perspective of what God is doing right now among us. And we've seen it from lots of different, uh, lots of different confirmations, lots of different testimonies we are, are showing us what God is doing. The Father set the ethos. And we don't let immature teenagers who are laser-focused on me and what I'm doing put yokes on everybody else that may benefit them but don't benefit the whole family. Okay, so God, God calls us to, number one, listen to our fathers and trust that the way that the leadership sets things up has been done with this process, but also to grow up into fathers and to be part of that team that is of one accord in establishing the ethos of a people. Amen? And just as soon as you have an ethos, you'll have two, <laughs> two uh, situations that, you know, you have to bend the rules here, right? Because God never wants us to settle into um, just another oppressive yoke. Right? It could have easily become another oppressive yoke. And Paul and Barnabas stick it out together and they end up, Paul doesn't end up being who he can be and Barnabas doesn't end up succeeding with John Mark and it just becomes a big blow up. And the Jews run Paul out of town and there's another thing because he didn't circumcise Timothy, right? We always have to stay aware and, and open to the spirit and mindful of what is the most loving thing here. I'm not trying to dryly adhere to some external code. I'm trying to understand the people that God's placed me, that placed in my life and do the thing that's most loving for them. All right. So that's a lot of people call that the center, the, the, one of the, the summits of the, the book of Acts. It's, it's a really important thing that happens. And from then on, man, the, the gate is wide open to the Gentiles. Paul is going with Silas. And we get a long stretch. The second missionary journey and the third journey are um, basically the story is Paul's story from here on out. Uh, so for the next couple weeks, um, I don't know when our baby's going to come. So, and I don't know who will actually end up preaching if and when she does arrive. Um, but we have two more weeks in the book of Acts. And those will be on uh, Paul's, Paul's ministry from here on out. Amen? Amen. Any thoughts or questions or uh, anything you want to share before we close? Yeah. For Christmas, my parents uh, got me uh, Steve Humble's autobiography to spend time with us. Oh, yeah. I read a very good trade book. Uh, but I appreciated how he, he kind of talked through the movement and the Jesus movement after that. Here, will you come up? Everybody on Zoom is going.
By the way, let's see, we've got one, two, three, four, five. We've got about 15 people with us on Zoom. Um, and Steve Humble's autobiography for such a time as this, um, he goes through what he saw happen in the hippie movement and then the Jesus movement after that. Um, and apparently, like, there was just this explosion of small communities that came out of that, people deciding to, like, live together in unity, uh, decentralized churches and non-denominational, all that kind of came out of it. Um, and he was a part of a lot of them and then also just touched on a lot of them. Um, and all the ones that he were, was a part of, uh, they all had some deep division and split. Uh, and he, he talked about that. And he said he saw this trend. I'm going to take this up. <laughs> he saw this trend um, where, like, after about 10 years or so, there would be some, some theological division, usually theological or, or relational, um, that caused a division and a split, and, and these communities would kind of crumble. Um, and so I really appreciated his testimony and, to that and, and kind of discussing it. Uh, and talking through it uh, because I always want to see like Ben was saying revival and I, I want to see the spirit move in prophecy and in healing and in tongues um, but I really do believe that after reading that book especially uh, that I've witnessed a very great manifestation of the Holy Spirit just in in God keeping the CF churches <laughs> together that a division like that hasn't happened. And I think I really understand how impossible that is apart from the spirit. Um, and I don't even know all the long talks that have gone on in our church. Um, but I've just, I've just been so thankful for that. And, and really, I think that's what Jesus is most concerned about. That's what his prayer was um, to the father before he went to the cross, was that the disciples and the people who believe through the disciples that they would be one. Um, and so I think that's where he wants to, to pour his spirit, <laughs> is where there's going to be lasting unity. Um, and I think every time a long discussion like that happens, and you do come to one accord, I think that is nothing short of the miraculous uh, working of the spirit. So I just want to amen. You know what you were saying? Amen, yeah. Uh, ben Flannery just texted me. He says, churches are cisterns and revival is rain. Rain without cisterns is lost. Cisterns without rain are dry. That's good. <clears throat> Anybody else? Thanks, Stephen. And Ben? You are allowed to talk. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Let me get you. Go for it. Uh, as ECF, 
We need this. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like, I don't want to go on. You know, maybe we should talk about this for the next few months, you know, or a few years. You know, this isn't something that you can just kind of hear and go, all right, let's do that. You know, this, that's a major, there are deep insights into the way that the Spirit builds his church and the way, the role that wisdom plays and the role that, that direct guidance of the Holy Spirit plays, the way that, uh, the, the role that fresh revelation plays, and, and the role that individual experience plays. All those things play a role. And we need to be the kind of people who know how to, how to fuse all of those together into the best and most loving thing for us all to give ourselves to. Amen. All right, well, let's pray. Father, thank you for this. And I pray that uh, in, the, in the coming weeks and months, you would, Lord, that you would get the truth that you're trying to get at tonight. Uh, Lord, it's, it's, these are big thoughts. These are big ideas. And um, they require a lot of just thinking and contemplating. I pray that you would do that work among us, Lord, that we together would see, um, in addition, Lord, to seeing all the great things, the way that the church moves and expands and, and moves in power and shares the gospel and witnesses to who Jesus is, Lord, that we'd see the, the inner workings, Lord, the infrastructure, uh, the way that the cistern works and holds water, and uh, Lord, that you you. In, in these early years of our formation as a church, that we would get this early on, God. That we would really grasp this early on as a people. And we ask that not for our own well-being, although it will lead to that, but we ask that for everybody that you are going to bring among us in the, in the decades to come, Lord. Uh, we ask that we would be a healthy, wise, loving family uh, for them to find a home with God. And uh, so, Lord, in these years of uh, asking a lot of questions, of working through uh, the childhood and the teenage years with each other and all those things, God, that you give us wisdom, that that we would cling uh, to this process that we see in your word. And, uh, Lord, that scripture, as it did back then, Lord, that scripture would be our foundation. Uh, and that the Holy Spirit would quicken the whole process, Lord. Uh, For your glory in this church. Amen.